think there was a change in philosophy that, well, we're always going to have the pressure, let's just embrace it. And I think pressure is a positive thing because ultimately it gets the best out of us. But if you have too much, obviously, then then you know you get stiff and you know you just you just can't perform, and the negative thoughts come into your mind, and and um, the pressure gets to you. So it's kind of balancing, uh, ensuring that that pressure helps you perform when it matters, or embracing it, versus um, letting it consume you. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a person who sets very high standards, doesn't settle for mediocrity, and has a proven record in leading successful teams and sport organizations. He was born in Prague, Czechoslovakia, however, grew up in Canada, winning two swimming gold medals and setting two world records at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Our guest holds an honours degree in political science from the Renshin University, is a has a graduate diploma of education from the University of Queensland, and holds an honorary doctorate from Laurentian University as well. His career has included working as a sports administrator in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, with roles as a CEO and executive director at Queensland Swimming, Queensland Academy of Sport, Canada's Road to Excellence program, Canadian Olympic Committee's Own the Podium, High Performance Sport New Zealand, and is currently the Swimming Australia's Chief Strategist of High Performance. It is a pleasure to present to you one of the world's leading sport administrators, an International Swimming Hall of Fame inductee, husband to Australian swimmer Tracy Taggart, and a humble sporting parent of two international swimmers, Alex Bauman. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate that kind introduction. So you've had a very impressive career so far. What did you dream of being as a child? Well, I think when you're a child, you don't um, necessarily dream of, of being an Olympic champion. Um, I got into swimming. Um, it, it was really by accident, uh, although uh, my mother used to swim in Czechoslovakia and my brother got into swimming uh, very early. My brother was around eight years older than I was and I always wanted to follow him. Uh, obviously, we were very close even though um, there was a large um, um, separation of, of, of years and I just uh, started doing it for fun. I didn't really have any uh, key dreams of being at the Olympics until I, I started competing um, well into my, my my career. So you talk about falling into swimming, but what was it that really captured your attention to be able to follow that black line and do lap after lap, day after day? I think there were a couple things. Uh, one, um, uh, I came uh, from a place in, in uh, Canada called Sudbury, but uh, 400 kilometers north of, of Toronto. Um, they just had a new facility, a 50 meter pool. A new coach had come in um, uh, originally from, from Hungary, but he was a, a professor in, in child uh, development. And I think just those elements clicked. Uh, great facility, 
good coach, a fairly demanding coach. Uh, my brother, obviously, uh, swimming as as well. And um, I just um, love to be in the water. And um, I didn't really take it too seriously. But obviously, if you do have some success early on, you want more success. And, and uh, that kind of grew. I, I didn't come first. You know, I came third a couple times. But I did want to compete, and that competitive instinct really came in, in addition with that coach-athlete tandem as well. So obviously, you know, you continued on. You did really well with your swimming. You accepted a scholarship to swim under the tutelage of the legendary swimming coach James Dock Councilman at Indiana University. Why did you decide to head back and train under your longtime coach, Dr. Gino Tahani? Yes, it was a it was a difficult decision to actually accept a, a scholarship at Indiana University. But uh, I felt that um, by that time I'd been about um, eight years with my coach, and he needed uh, some kind of change. I also um, really. Um, like the the US NC2A system in terms of getting uh, competition on a week by week basis so I felt I had to actually try it the problem was when I uh, entered in Indiana University I, I had a um, quite a serious shoulder injury and um, I, I couldn't actually swim so they redshirted me the first semester of the first year and it was then that I decided that I needed to be back um, with familiar surroundings uh, with my coach um, with uh, the doctor that I used to see with the physio as well to ensure that I could uh, rehabilitate properly going into uh, Commonwealth Games in, in 1982 and then obviously the 84 Olympics. So 1984 was a year of incredible highs and challenging lows for you. Um, obviously, the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Games, you got gold medals and world records in both the 200IM and 400IM swimming events, which are phenomenal achievements. But during this time, you were coping with the tragedies of losing both your father and brother while continuing to manage lingering shoulder injuries, which you've just spoken about. What strategies did you find really helpful to help you cope with that adversity and rise above and be successful at the Olympics? Yes, uh, good, good question. Um, as, as you mentioned, um, you know, a number of things and, and you deal with these challenges or you have to work through this adversity. And I, I believe that, um, you know, having kind of um, overcome these hurdles, I became a much better uh, competitor. So uh, my brother uh, committed suicide um, in, in 1980, um, just before um, I was to go to the Olympics. Unfortunately, we boycotted the Olympics in, in Moscow in, in 1980. In 1983, my, my father passed away uh, about six or seven months uh, before the Olympic Games themselves. And then in 1981, I had a serious shoulder injury, which kept me out of the water for about eight months. And I thought my swimming career was, was over. But I think you have a lot of support around you. So my parents were extremely uh, supportive, particularly my, my mother um, with these challenges. And, and, you know, a couple of these challenges obviously affected them as, as, as well. But um, the coach was really important. So, you know, I had a relationship with my coach um, that, that he was really a, a father figure uh, for me as well. In fact, I, I saw him probably more than, than I saw my father. You know, I, I saw him five or six hours a day. I only saw my father toward toward the evening. So um, he, he became a father figure um, to me. He was he was a great friend. Um, that's not to say he didn't push me. Um um, but he did get the best out 
side of me and um, we, we took it one step at a time. Uh, I think that's the key not to get overwhelmed by these challenges. But there are studies that have been done that um, for gold medalists that um, uh, if you look at it, a, a majority of gold medalists have had to deal with some kind of trauma in their lives. And I do believe that dealing with this adversities makes them stronger uh, competitors. And, and that's what happened with me. I think while, when I got to the Olympic Games in 1984, I'd been through it all. I'd been through injury. I'd been through, um, you know, deaths in, in, in the family and, and other things as well. And I, I just felt that it really... Uh, you, you could throw anything at me and I could still be able to perform. So you built incredible resilience and obviously developed a real fire in the belly, so to speak. And we've seen that with you know, many top athletes, as you mentioned as well. So athlete health and welfare has become a real focus in recent years. So as an elite athlete, how much attention did you place on your university studies and a future career in the corporate world? Because you never know when your swimming career is going to be over. Absolutely, and I think there's there's two aspects to that. One, uh, that uh, you want to plan for the future, but I think the second aspect is important as well. That you want to keep busy. Like you don't want to be thinking about a sport 24 hours a day uh, as a, as a competitor because it gets too daunting. So you know, 1984, I was um, still taking on a full load at, at university of, of four courses and. That really kept my mind occupied rather than thinking about uh, the Olympics uh, because in my uh, circumstances, um, it, it was, the Olympics were quite difficult. There, there's no doubt about it because I had both world records going in and um, the, the expectations were high. Even six months before the Olympic Games, um, in, in the press, they were saying two gold medals, two gold medals, two gold medals. I stopped reading the press. I mean, I, now, I know now that that's difficult in terms of social media, but if you pay too much attention to, to those headlines, then you start believing that um, it's going to be easy, and it was never going to, to be easy. So I could really only equal everybody's expectations, and I still remember... Uh, the first event, the 400 individual medley, and going in the heat and, and swimming relatively well, um, you know, five seconds off my best time, but still breaking an Olympic record, qualifying first for the final, going to get some sleep, uh, getting something to eat, and then getting some sleep. But I couldn't sleep because it felt like um, my heart was pounding so hard it was moving the whole bed. <laughs> and it was at that point in time I felt the weight um, and, and the pressure was, was really starting to get to me because um, Canada hadn't won a gold medal in swimming in 72 years. Um, the expectations were high. Uh, I had both world records going in. And in reality, I could only equal everybody's expectations. And, and that was difficult. And I just told myself, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I can't worry about external things. I have to just concentrate on what I have to do. And I'm, I've done the physical preparation. I'm psychologically ready. I've competed against all these guys, and I've beaten them. And that raised my confidence level. And I was able to go in there and fortunately win and, and, and break my world record. And it was an incredible experience standing on that podium and, and hearing the national anthem. But it was difficult. So I do feel for, for athletes. So, you know, going back to... You know the welfare thing, um, well-being. I do think that athletes have to do something else other than just um, the, their uh, competitive careers. Um, 
but they have to plan for the future because the transition is difficult. After you retire, um, you have about five or six hours in your day that's not really planned for. And so what are you going to fill that time with? So it's always good to have some kind of backup um, that you can you can do and make that transition as, as easy as possible. But a lot of athletes really struggle with that transition because they go from being top of the world in one discipline or one sport and then go out in the real world and they have to start at the bottom again. So it is it is challenging. And I think with athletes today, we have to ensure that we have that balance, you know, well-being, health and welfare, but not lose the performance focus as well, because I, I believe there is a spectrum there. If you focus too much on well-being, uh, welfare, then you lose that performance side. If you have too much of a focus on the performance side, then, you know, you're not going to get the performances you need because that well-being aspect, the athletes aren't happy. They're not enjoying what they're actually doing. So following on from that, we, we see a lot of coaches and high performance staff placing a massive focus on the athlete's performance. However, they don't always focus on being a high performing person themselves. How important it is for coaches and high performance staff to role model high performing behaviors rather than just being a coach of or, or deliverer of high performance? Absolutely critical. And, and it is a challenge. And, and, I think times change as well. It's not like it was 30 years ago where coaches were quite authoritarian. Um, you know that they they need to now empower athletes and and shift the responsibility of performance on on the athletes that the athletes actually want to to do that. Um, of course, we still have coaches that um, you know are hard nosed and authoritarian, and um, it's it's my way and. Etc. But but I think there's fewer and fewer coaches like that um, in this day and age. Um, I think you get the best out of athletes when you can empower them, when they understand what they're going for, and what they're actually uh, what really is world's best, and what they have to do uh, to be world's best. So. Um, well-being of coaches is, is critical often at times they don't take care of themselves I mean let's face it coaching is not conducive to family life you're often away uh, long periods of time you um, you have a lot of weekends that are taken up so it's it, it is it is challenging but it's still important for those coaches to actually have those performance discussions with with their athletes if we want to truly be the best that we can be and so you know, I do think that um, I believe in the in the vision in terms of winning when it matters uh, to inspire a nation. And while we won't always win, we should always have that aspiration uh, to 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 win and have a fairly lofty goal. So coaches, um, you know, I think have to take care of themselves. They have to espouse the values. Of, of high performance and obviously there's integrity as, as well but there's excellence um, there's collaboration with purpose uh, to ensure that um, they get the outcomes um, that they want um, that they get uh, the best out of their athletes but it is it is a changing environment and um, you know it, it, we all know that it's hard to win on on the world stage particularly at at, at Olympics and how do you kind of um, uh, I, I won't say impose but how do you kind of um, uh, ensure that those athletes uh, understand what it takes uh, to, to win because we're we're dealing in a society where high performance uh, sometimes runs contrary 
to uh, societal norms in terms of egalitarianism. I mean, there's no egalitarianism in high-performance sport, and um, that that is sometimes a challenge. Yeah. So the when you get to say a pinnacle event, you know, we quite often see many athletes struggle to achieve their standards that they're you know they've been training for that they're ready for they they have the talent for how much of an effect does say the the energy levels or stress levels you know the the presence of the coach and the ability for the coaches and high performance staff to cope under pressure because a lot of the time they may only attend one or two one olympics maybe two if they're really lucky so you know does it have a huge effect or is it really a lot more just down to the athlete at that stage Oh, no, I think it's a support team as well. But um, we all know that once you get up on those blocks, <laughs> you have to do it yourself. But, um, you know, my, my coach would, would um, you know, my example, my coach would, would uh, certainly help me and, and um, try to deal or dissipate um, the pressure. And I think the other thing is that um, sometimes uh, we, we see pressure as, as a negative uh, and this is easier said than done. We should really try to embrace uh, pressure. Uh, I always kind of use the example of, of the All Blacks, where um, you know post 2007, after their quarterfinal loss, um, they started to embrace pressure. I haven't seen a team that um, is under more pressure uh, worldwide because every time they go out on the field, they're expected to win. And I think there was a change in philosophy that, well, we're always going to have the pressure. Let's just embrace it. And I think pressure is a positive thing because ultimately it gets the best out of us. But if you have too much, obviously, then, then you know, you get stiff and, you know, you just, you just can't perform and the negative thoughts come into your mind and, and um, the pressure gets to you. So it's kind of balancing uh, ensuring that that pressure helps you perform when it matters or embracing it versus um, letting it consume you. So it is difficult. Yes, it is up to the athlete, but the support team is quite important, especially the athlete coach tandem. So my coach, you know, he was the only coach that I had other than for that short stint at Indiana with Doc Councilman. He knew me. Uh, he knew me very well. Um, he would put positive thoughts um, uh, in, into my mind. He, you know, things you don't worry about. Um, you know, things you can't control. Well, don't worry about those things. So I, I think it's it, it's really important. But when you do step on the block, you still have to do it yourself. Let's change strokes a little bit here, so to speak, and focus on your sport administration career. What attracted you to become a sport administrator? Well, it was quite interesting um, because it wasn't something that I uh, looked to do. Um, after I finished um, competing, I, I did go into coaching for, for a few years. And although I enjoyed it, I, I knew that that wasn't always going to be my profession. And then I needed some kind of backup. So I did a PhD in, in government. I did one year of that and, and decided that um, it's probably not something that, um, that I wanted to do. But I felt that I needed something to fall back on. So I did my grad, graduate diploma of education and taught at a uh, private boys school uh, for a couple of years on, on the Gold Coast in, in Australia. And I knew that was always going to be a, a means to an end. 
um, because then during that time I was director of swimming at that school as well I, I really felt that um, I wanted to get back into high performance and I was given the opportunity at the Queensland Academy of Sport uh, to be the program manager for 24 sports so it, it wasn't something that that I really planned but it was something that I was certainly passionate about and I felt that I could give something back uh, through my experiences as an athlete and and a coach but it takes a lot of time as well to develop those skills as an administrator as we all know athletes often don't make great coaches and athletes don't often make great administrators either do coaches so um, I was quite fortunate that I had a few mentors and in terms of Wilma Shakespeare who was at the Queensland Academy of Sport and obviously dealing with coaches was was key and I do believe in that philosophy I'm very strong on that that we have to be performance driven coach led and athlete focused and I try to you know, uh, use that in, 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 in obviously administration positions with, with high performance sport or sport in, in general, because I think strategy is, is critical. So if you have a strong philosophy and you maintain that, then you get the outcomes that you're all looking for. So you were fortunate to lead both Queensland Academy of Sport and then Queensland swimming during the lead up during and post the Sydney Olympics when there was a lot of focus and resources placed on Australian sport. How important are pinnacle events to the growth and development of sport in a host country? Oh, massive, massive. I think we saw that with, um, when you know, I, you mentioned that I was um, CEO of Queensland Swimming uh, during the Sydney Games, and um, we, we got a significant bump um, in participation numbers, registration numbers in Queensland. I think it was around 15 or, or 16%. Uh, from from the games themselves, um, I, I think um, hosting events is is critical for not only uh, I guess um, creating excitement um, w within the sport it, it itself, but also in terms of performances. Um, you know, if if you have um, host competitions and, and uh, you're able to compete in front of your home crowd, then I, th I think, um, you know, you will do, do better. And, and we saw that with Sydney. And then even, even going in Athens, we were still performing uh, quite well. But, you know, subsequently after that, um, you know, and what's pretty normal with um, hosting games is the performances start to slide a little bit because there is an incredible amount of investment in terms of hosting, not only in terms of the event itself, but the facilities, the infrastructure. And so I do think it's, it's important on a number of uh, fronts to, to host key events um, with, within the country. What has been your biggest learning curve as a sport administrator and what piece of advice do you have for the next generation of sport administrators coming through? Um, I think the, the biggest learning curve for me is uh, I guess the, the ability to challenge in a way that doesn't offend people. Um, I do believe that you need to have those open and honest conversations. Um, and I think in a society which is quite politically correct now, we don't have enough of those conversations. And that, and that takes a long time uh, to develop. So you can't compromise on performance. Um, when I was in Canada, 
you know that there was always um, a, a feeling that uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't challenge but I do like to see uh, a certain amount of tension within a system within the relationships themselves because I think it gets the best um, out, out of people uh, I always kind of remember um, when I was in New Zealand Chris Boyd who was the head coach of, of the Hurricanes in the Super 15 um, he had a poster in in the locker room of, of uh, a fisherman uh, with a marlin on the line and and the rod was was um, bending and um, you know I think if, if um, you have too much tension uh, it obviously breaks the line and you lose the fish but um, conversely if you don't have enough tension on that relationship then you lose the fish anyway so uh, that that's one thing I think I have learned one uh, strategy is key keep it as simple as possible um, ensure particularly in high performance that there's no compromise um, we have to strive for excellence and then really thirdly is once you have that strategy make sure you stick to that strategy but you you challenge um, and ask questions but do it in a skillful way and I think a lot of times it's based on relationships and it's based on trust within those relationships if you don't have trust then uh, more than likely you're going to offend a person if you if you start challenging them but there is a skill to that and I don't think a lot of people have that skill and it takes a lot of time to develop and for me dealing with for example 24 high performance coaches at the Queensland Academy of Sport that was challenging we know that coaches have egos and in a lot of um, ways that's what makes them them good at, at what they do but you got to be able to challenge them effectively so you have to build the relationships and ultimately ask key questions and understand their environments as as well so that's probably the the, the key thing that i've learned uh, over my career in terms of getting the best out of people it uh brings back my memory of an interview we did with alvin hugh a few years uh, sorry a few months ago and he was talking about they have in the company they had a the confrontation room and so that was when you bought your ideas and it was a big debate and it was challenging and and kind of like that tension you're talking about which i think is really important with working in high performance sport in australia canada and new zealand what have been the biggest differences in culture and approach to success yes interesting one um uh, i i think the principles are are the same in high performance if you truly want to win on on the world stage um, the execution um, depending on the cultural circumstances um, you know the history uh, of a country makes a difference uh, there's also structures involved that are different so for example uh, Canada Australia uh, federal model it's it's more difficult um, to to get a decision because uh, you have provinces, you have more stakeholders in, involved. Now, that doesn't mean that you go down the route of making consensus decisions because I've never believed in that. Ultimately, you're there to lead and you're there to make hard decisions, but you need to try to ensure that you bring people along as well. That doesn't mean that you don't get criticism for some of the decisions you make, but you're really paid to lead. 
And so in Canada, Australia, it's, it's more difficult um, because we have states in Australia, provinces in, in Canada, you have a coaches association, et cetera, et cetera, a number of stakeholders. And you have to ensure that you have you get them aligned with, with the strategy first and foremost. And once you get that alignment to strategy, then it's a little bit easier because they know what direction you're going in. New Zealand was different. Um, it was not a federal model. Uh, High-performance sport in New Zealand really controlled um, the elite sport system, with the exception of perhaps uh, rug, rugby union, uh, because it, you know that that was uh, a considerable resource. They had considerable resources on their own, but we still had an impact, particularly on on sevens. But it was much easier to make decisions. So. I think the other thing is in high performance, you need to have some kind of urgency. You need to be able to make decisions quite quickly, but sometimes structures uh, impede that um, um, quickness in terms of making decisions. That doesn't mean you don't get the right evidence to make your decisions, but you don't need 100% of the evidence to make a decision. You need 80% because to, to get that other 20% takes too much time, too much effort, um, might be costly financially as, as, as well. So in, in countries, you see that um, the culture within that country, there are some sports that are really important. And you have to take that in, into account, but you can't go against uh, a performance-based system. I believe in accountability. And if you set a direction, you set the goals, you set the targets, um, if sports don't perform, well, there's an accountability to that. And I, can't, I don't think you shy away from, from that. Otherwise, you'll never succeed in high performance because you're um, just um, – really sharing the, the investment or funding uh, far too wide and you won't get any results. So you have to make fairly difficult decisions in terms of who you invest in, what sports you invest in. But the principles of, of high performance are, are uh, really the, the same. Um, and, and it's not rocket science. Um, coaching has to be the, the number one priority because it's the key enabler to, to athlete success. Facilities is important. Uh, the daily performance environment uh, is important. Having world-leading performance support is, is critical. And then ensuring that those athletes have the right competitive opportunities as well. The final two things for me, uh, which are, are critical in, in high performance, is innovation. But if you don't get all those other things right, in the first instance, there's no point going to innovation. And then the last one is really that sustainability piece is talent identification. Where are our best coaches and athletes coming from, you know, in not this cycle, but the next cycle and the further cycle after that. Um, and that for me is truly having a, a world leading system. So talking about world leading systems over the last sort of uh, Olympic cycles, we've seen New Zealand focused more on resourcefulness. We've seen Great Britain focus more on resources. How does a CEO or leader balance that building resources versus being more resourceful? It, it is a difficult one. Uh, I do think um, that there's always a balance and I, I've you know seen organizations, I mean, two things. One, one is there's an investment. Um, 
uh, into athletes, coaches, um, but also on the other side, there's uh, providing expertise. So it's really kind of a capability and capacity uh, approach. And I do believe um, in efficiencies. So you try to streamline as, as much as possible, but I also believe in effectiveness. And sometimes effectiveness is more expensive than um, just being efficient. Efficient is all about dollars. Effectiveness is whether or not you're actually going to get the results you need to get, um, you know, the goals that you outline, and and how do you actually attain those goals with the resources that, that you have. I, I've always believed that, sure, we, we can always have more resources, but you're going to have to cut your cloth accordingly and make some difficult decisions on what you support and what you don't support. And, um, you know, we didn't have a lot in New Zealand uh, compared to other countries like the UK, you mentioned Australia or Canada. The, the high performance system was around $72 million a year for supporting all the sports. And you just have to make some, some harder decisions in terms of who you can support, who you can't support. And ultimately, we looked at a number of things in terms of historical performance, what is the potential for the future? Future, What is the quality of the program, meaning what coaches do they have in, in place? So I do believe in capability and, and capacity. Sometimes national sporting organizations don't have the capacity. They have the capability, but they get drowned with uh, a lot of compliance um, and, and therefore lose focus and get, get distracted from what they actually have to do. I think the other aspect is as well is as you develop a system, um, sometimes you lose the simplicity. We understand that high performance is um, complex, but it's not rocket science. And sometimes we try to get too complex to get that additional 1%, whereas we should really be concentrating how do we develop our coaches, how do we ensure we have the right facilities, uh, do we have the right pathways for our coaches and athletes, and how do we ensure that we provide those athletes with the opportunities that they need to develop into uh, world, uh, world-leading athletes. So all those things come, come into play, but... I would again state that uh, high performance sport isn't rocket science and trying to take the complexity out of it, trying to make sure it's as simple as possible is important. So you've gone from leading systems to now being back in the system, so to speak, at Swimming Australia. Can you inform us, our listeners what your role is now at the moment with swimming and high performance? Sure. So, I mean, I have the title of chief strategist, but it's really it really means that I'm the head of high performance. And so while I'm responsible for the strategy itself uh, and the execution of that strategy, um, I'm also responsible for the three streams, Olympic, Paralympic, and, uh, and open water, although open water is, is part, of, part of the Olympic stream as, as, as well. And then obviously you have the transition program as well, which is that sustainability piece. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's important that... Um, you know, we, we did the strategy when I first came on board about 15 months ago. We had a 72-page um, high-performance strategic plan, which nobody really understood. So it was my uh, role to, you know, let's put that down to six or seven pages, uh, clearly understand what we're trying to achieve, what is the vision, what is the philosophy, what's, what's the mission, what are the key goals, and what are the strategic drivers, and what are the strategic priorities. And, and you can actually fit that onto one page. 
Um, but what was missing in the 72 page plan was there's no, um, there's no winning. There, there was not one word of winning. And that's why it was important to set that vision that um, win when it matters to inspire a nation because there's two aspects. And the inspirational component is through winning. It's not through just participating at world championships and, and Olympics. So we, we cut that down. We made it simple. Um, staff understand, athletes and coaches understand what we're trying to achieve. And then the uh, next thing is really trying to bring everybody on board with that strategy. But again, once you put a strategy in place, you have to stick to that strategy. Um, and if it's not in the strategy, don't do it. And so I think with a 72-page document, there's just too many things. We were doing way too many things. We weren't prioritizing effectively. Um, there wasn't really a focus on excellence. Um, the aspiration to win wasn't there. You know, so I think we're starting to get there, but there's no doubt that we still have um, some significant challenges. I think there's still entitlement in, in the system. I think um, particularly after coming back to Australia after 12 years, I see a blame culture. And so how do we ensure that we put the responsibility ownership for performance back on the coaches, back on athletes, back on the staff and make them accountable as, as well? And that means setting some fairly high standards. That means getting the right people in the right positions to be able to drive uh, performance. And I think the other thing is just empowering people. Uh, if you hire the right people, just let them get on with the job. Obviously, there's a check and balance that you have to have as a chief strategist, but um, you need to let them get on. You need to ensure that they're innovative, that there's initiative, um, and, and that, that um, you know you, you get the outcomes that we all want. So talking about support networks, which are extremely important for an athlete's career, parents are a very important component of that in most cases. Both of your children are very talented international swimmers with Ashton representing Canada at the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. How involved have you been with both Tabitha and Ashton's swimming career? Yes, uh, good, good question. Um, not, not very. I, um, the, the challenge for my kids was, was the name that I had and um, there, there was considerable pressure on on them that uh, because they're my kids that um, they're going to do well no matter what happens. But um, they they worked very hard. I, I would um, not. Uh, I was always there for for advice, uh, but I tried to stay out of it as as a parent. I I had to trust, and I think most parents have to do this. Uh, they have to trust uh, the coach. They have to trust the system. Obviously, you want to find the right um, environment for for your kids, but um, as they get older, they have to make those those decisions. So. It was a difficult time, especially when when they started swimming in Canada. The expectations were quite high on them because of who I who I was here. It's a little bit different because I'm a little bit more, um, you know, anonymous. But um, it, it it is difficult for kids of of um, athletes that, that have succeeded, and um, they did extremely extremely well and i'm very proud of of what they achieved but um you know i wasn't down on deck um with a stopwatch or in the stands with a stopwatch i i had full faith in the coach i'd try to support them as much as possible obviously drive them try to give them opportunities as well but uh, i wouldn't interfere with their development brilliant 
So what habits or routines do you have that ensure that you turn up and show up every single day? <laughs> I'm just passionate about sport. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, one of my challenges is, is just ensuring that, that I have enough balance between work and, and family life. And I've never actually uh, had that in, in enough. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I thrive on, on challenge. Um, once I'm in a position for four or five years, I, I find that, um, I need to find, a, a different challenge and it's time for someone to um to take over with with fresh fresh eyes um so you know i find the challenge um and succeeding in high performance is is um extremely uh gratifying and also the fact that um that i'm making a difference um i won't take take on positions unless i feel that i can actually make uh, a difference and that keeps me motivated but i do have as with a, a lot of leaders uh, you know that that there is that challenge of of keeping a proper balance um between you know being on for 24 7 versus just putting down the phone and um and not answering the phone and not getting to an email within the first five minutes uh, but but i do believe in urgency and i do believe you need to react uh quickly and that's just uh, part of high performance so um yeah i'm i'm motivated by by being the best that that I can be. I'm motivated by performing well on an international stage. And, um, you know, that, that has served me quite well, but there have been, you know, some consequences on that as well. So do you still swim? I, I don't swim. I get in the gym. I was in the gym this, this morning. So I, I, I enjoy doing the weights, but I probably will, um, get back. I did swim for a long time as, uh, you know, in masters and I, I, uh, in, enjoy that. I enjoy the training more than actually competing, to be honest. But um, um, now, but um, now I'm I'm more in in the gym, so I enjoy that. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? <laughs> well, it, this it's talking about that balance between family and life and. Um, and um, work was was um, so I did go water skiing <laughs> for the first time, uh, and and tried to go um, one ski, and that was the first time. But um, that I, that I did something very new. But I, I do do agree that you have to keep doing new thing new things. That you have to keep reinventing uh, your yourself to do to do new things and try different things as well. What is the one question that you would love to solve? I think the one question is what what drives uh, each individual, and um, it, it it is a challenge when you're trying to get excellence. That um, and I think you know as a leader, um, one of the keys for me, and I learned that actually in, in New Zealand, was having empathy for for your staff. Um, I used to be. Um, fairly direct um had very short meetings and and if you weren't prepared for a meeting you know it, it was it was fairly harsh um but what i learned in in new zealand is that you have to take time to know your staff um and understand their personal situation as as well and um, you know just just have a talk with them and 
value their input um, and understand where they're coming from as well. That doesn't mean that you take their input on board, but it is part of that empowerment and understanding who you're actually working with. It doesn't necessarily mean that you socialize with these people, but it's really getting an empathy of where they're coming from, the differences in what drives them. And I guess that's what I, I... love to get at that's the question that i would like to get um solved with each one how do you get get there quicker in terms of understanding what drives an individual as as you would know i mean some sometimes being fairly direct um with with um staff or or people gets gets a result sometimes that doesn't sometimes you have to say oh you're doing a great job and that motivates them to to do things um or or go out there and 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 really work work hard so it is that people bit and i think it's not different to to athletes in terms of athletes and coaches in terms of what drives them uh to be successful and how do you develop that within each individual and how do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? I know that um, I'm on my game if I have enough time to really think strategically and not get inundated with some of the operational aspects of the position. I'm, I'm pretty good at um, delegating, um, obviously delegating uh, based on, on competence. So I know that um, if I have a fairly good good balance, I'm still enjoying some of the good things in life, you know, going fishing or going boating or getting out on, on, on the jet ski. That's where I feel like I'm in my peak, where I'm not stressed dealing with all the detail, understanding that as a leader, you need to um, make sure that that you get uh, appropriate detail in in what you do, but you need to have that strategic vision. And sometimes it's difficult to get both. Some leaders are great at strategy, but they can't do anything operationally and they don't have any detail and they have to depend on other people. Whereas I think a great leader has both and can change from one into into the other but you can't lose that time to really have that white space to really think about things where you want to go what the future looks like and um, that's what drives me as well been very informative today alex so how can people learn more about what you do and if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way to connect with you Oh, I, I think via email if, if they want to uh, contact me. I always, um, you know, I think the other thing as a leader, you have to be like a sponge. The best coaches that I've seen are, are like sponges. They take things on board and we really can't be so insular to think that we know it all. So sometimes having a discussion with a person that comes from a different sector or has a different, um, you know, has some different experiences is, is very, very valuable. And I, I do thrive on that. So it's email or, or phone call. I mean, it, it, it doesn't um, really matter. And I'm always open to having a conversation and, and uh, learning from people. Um, because as I said, um, once you think you know it all, um, you know, you're, you're dead in the water. Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed going from your career, your early career days as a swimmer and talking about how you balanced that adversity with success and how you over to overcome some of those big challenges. Talking around the differences in working environments in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and it's not so much around the strategy aspects, but it's around 
how you win the hearts and minds and connect people together so you can develop that high performance environment for people to really thrive and exceed and, and excel at what they choose to from their goals. You've thrown in some great ideas around health and wellness and the importance of ensuring that people look after themselves in a holistic way, but knowing when to balance that you know, real uh, direction and performance focus with ensuring they can step out of that and just let their body and mind relax a little bit and have and ensure that they can stand there for their long-term um, aspect of their, their life. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your insights. We really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing how the Australian swimmers do at the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. It was a pleasure. This week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is commitment to excellence. Own where you want to go, constantly work at it, and have the discipline to strive for excellence around how you are going to do it, why you are going to do it, and make sure you put a plan into action. You need to commit to excellence if you want to be excellence. It won't just happen by yourself. So you have to set that higher standard just above where you're at so you keep reaching every single day. Achieve it, celebrate it, then set another higher standard. Achieve it, celebrate it, then set another higher standard. If you don't have a higher purpose, you'll just stay at your current level. You'll get frustrated and you won't achieve the goals that you really want to in life. Thank you for listening to an incredible conversation with Alex Bauman talking about high performance leadership on the Active CEO podcast. Many people see high performance leadership as all about productivity and revenues achieved. When in fact, it is all about our performance during interactions with human beings and getting the best out of them. Being a high performing leader is all about having the energy, being fully present, speaking with clarity and certainty, and delivering your best performance to inspire and elevate people to a whole nother level. If you would like to understand how energy to perform can help you to ensure that you form high-performing habits that change the game for the people you work with and interact with, then please contact us. Learn more about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by going to www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.